The Hamlet Podcast, episode 72. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanratty. This week, we begin Act 3 of the play. We are therefore roughly 40% of the way through the entirety of Hamlet. Obviously, this is another rather long act and will be in Act 3 until January of 2020. Imagine that. While obviously part of my reasoning for creating this podcast is the general richness of the play and the fact that there's at least something to be found in every 20-line excerpt from it, Act 3 does contain some of the really iconic moments of the play, among them the performance by the players, whether you prefer to call it the murder of Gonzago or the mousetrap, which naturally we will discuss, and a certain existential soliloquy that we'll unpack over a series of in-depth episodes. So I suppose we better get started. The stage directions tell us that this new scene begins in a room in the castle. Nothing too specific or demanding, just another space in Elsinore. Claudius and Gertrude enter with Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, Polonius and Ophelia in tow. Some scripts suggest that sundry lords also come in, but that's really at the discretion of a director. It will be worth remembering throughout that Ophelia is on stage for the entirety of this scene. She doesn't get to say very much at the beginning, but she is here throughout. We've just had Hamlet's spirited final couplet ending the previous scene and the previous act. The play's the thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. As he bounds off via one exit, king and company can be entering from another, and Shakespeare writes this sense of motion into the text, ignoring all pleasantries and having the scene begin in medias res, so that it comes to us only when it's getting interesting. This is sort of the Shakespearean equivalent of Aaron Sorkin's famous talk and walk sequences from the West Wing. They're moving and speaking as they enter, whatever room this is. Just as Hamlet is cooking up a plot to entrap Claudius, the king is likewise trying to figure out what the young prince is up to. He's debriefing his spies, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, pumping them for information. And already he seems a bit frustrated as he enters. And can you, by no drift of conference, get from him why he puts on this confusion, grating so harshly all his days of quiet with turbulent and dangerous lunacy? Straight away, we have a difference of opinion between the quarto and folio versions of this speech. The folio has drift of circumstance, but several of the quartos all have conference, and I am inclined to prefer the latter. Claudius is asking the lads if they've not managed by any means to find out what Hamlet is doing. A drift of conference would be a change in the direction of a conversation, and it's their conversation with him that we'll be discussing for the next several lines. Drift of circumstance sounds like a more vague and general hope that things might somehow land on the desired subject. There'd be plenty for an actor to convey with this, of Claudius showing that he really doesn't have much faith at all in the investigative powers of our two dear friends, but conference seems to me a better point. The king is wondering if they managed in any way to bend the conversation to the issue of Hamlet's putting on this confusion. It seems the king is not convinced that Hamlet's behaviour is anything more than an act. He does feel perhaps even sympathetically, like it's ruining Hamlet's life, grating or roughing up so harshly all his days of quiet with this turbulent and dangerous lunacy. As usual, Rosencrantz is the first to reply. He does confess he feels himself distracted, but from what cause he will by no means speak. 
So, Rosencrantz says, they've managed to ascertain that Hamlet is distracted, or upset, but he will not by any means tell them why. Distracted here has a stronger meaning than our modern sense of one's focus moving from one stimulus to another. It's not a great confession, really. So Guildenstern chimes in too, explaining why this is all they have. Nor did we find him forward to be sounded, but with a crafty madness, keeps aloof, when we would bring him on to some confession of his true state. In other words, we didn't really find him in a very forthcoming state. There was no sense that he was in a mood to be interrogated, or forward to be sounded. But whenever they tried to lead him towards some confession or other, he maintained his crafty madness. He held back, he kept aloof, and really didn't let them in at all on the true state of his feelings. So basically, they're telling the boss. They got him to confess that he wasn't feeling great, but since he didn't want to talk about it, they couldn't get much else from him. So Gertrude tries a different tack, and she asks, Did he receive you well? She's curious to know whether Hamlet was even happy to see them, his most dear friends and all that. Can she already have a sense that these two were not the best spies to enlist? Rosencrantz replies that yes, he received them most like a gentleman. But again, Guildenstern moderates this, saying that he was all very well and gentlemanly, but with much forcing of his disposition. Guildenstern seems eager to make the point that Hamlet was polite, but that this wasn't necessarily how he was really feeling. His disposition might have had him feeling otherwise, but he forced himself to be gracious. It all feels like Guildenstern wants very subtly to blame Hamlet for their total lack of information. Rosencrantz perhaps catches on and elaborates on how Hamlet responded, niggard of question, but of our demands most free in his reply. Before going any further, particularly since this is an audio format rather than a written or a read one, I want to clarify and assure you that while the word niggard, N-I-G-G-A-R-D, sounds dangerously close to a racial slur, it dates all the way back to Middle English and means someone who is mean, ungenerous or miserly. The other word, it need not be spoken, comes from Spanish and or Portuguese and obviously has a terrible history. Just by virtue of how easy it would be to hear and assume the worst while an actor is speaking in performance, my sense would be that it might be worth finding another word for Rosencrantz in this text. What he's saying here is that Hamlet wasn't very forthcoming with questions, but that he was most free in his reply to himself and Guildenstern for everything they asked. Hamlet wasn't initiating many questions, but happy to reply to theirs. Now this goes somewhat against Guildenstern has said about Hamlet being aloof, does it not? And indeed, it is completely against the experience we had of the scene before, in which Hamlet asks them at least ten times whether they were sent for or not. This might be the key to it all. Amazingly, it seems as though Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are staying on Hamlet's side. They don't in any way reveal to Claudius that Hamlet has a plan, or, nor indeed do they even agree that his madness is put on as the king suggests. Now while Claudius is presumably ruminating over all of this, Gertrude again tries to prompt some more information. and She asks, did you assay him to any pastime? In other words, did you invite him to do anything, to any kind of leisure activity that might get his mind off all of this brooding? Rosencrantz replies, Madam, it so fell out that certain players we o'erwrought on the way. 
Of these we told him, and there did seem in him a kind of joy to hear of it. They are about the court, and, as I think, they have already order this night to play before him. Madam, he explains, we actually passed a group of travelling players on our way to court. We told Hamlet about them, and, I love this line, there did seem in him a kind of joy to hear it. There's so little joy in the world of this play, for anyone, really, that it's a lovely little spark planted by Shakespeare. There did seem in him a kind of joy to hear of it. Rosencrantz explains that the players have arrived at court, and as far as he knows, they're due to give a performance for Hamlet this evening. We will save the King and Queen's initial response to the news of this great theatrical event for the next episode. As ever, you can get the full text and any notes for this week on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. I've been thinking of reviving the newsletter that I had at the very beginning of the podcast's life and then it fell by the wayside, but I'd love to hear thoughts from you, dear listeners. I'll add a poll on social media, where I hope you're following at Hamlet Podcast, either on Twitter, on Instagram or Facebook, to get any and all news before anybody else, and I'd love to hear from you on this subject. Thank you very much in advance for your response, and I'll speak to you next time.